I feel like we're, we're prepped for fight night or something. Uh, apparently, we're going to be talking about Jesus in the desert. Um, so this series that we've been in, if you were with us last week, is called Know Thyself, and it's based off of this incredible quote from St. Augustine, who wrote in his confessions, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I might know thee. If you think about it, the fundamental barrier to going deeper in your knowledge of God, really the restraint that's going to happen at some point in your life if you are pursuing God, if you're interested in God, if you're on any kind of spiritual journey, is that at some point you're going to realize that in order to understand who God is more, it's actually going to take the reflective work of understanding yourself more, where the movements of your heart originate from, where your passions and skills are being directed, how God has been working and moving and stirring, and where perhaps you have been tempted, distracted, or confused. So one of the texts we thought would be really helpful to explore this conversation around knowing thyself is Jesus in the wilderness as he's confronted by Satan. Now, I mentioned this last week. We'll go ahead and put this up on screen. Luke 4, 1 to 2. The setup for this passage uh, tells us that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So, so Jesus, interestingly, is led by the Spirit. This is clearly something that the Spirit is doing. He enters into the wilderness, which if you've been tracking with Israel's story at all, you know the wilderness is not really an enjoyable place. It's not a comfortable place. Instead, it's this difficult place of testing and endurance. And he there waits for 40 days, eating nothing while being tempted the whole time. However, I, I just pointed out last week that word tempted is actually a word that we can miss a bit in English. Tempted almost sounds like seduced or wooed. Instead, tempted in the Greek is actually the word for testing or trial. So it's this rigorous endurance test put before Jesus, much like an Olympian would be put through as they're on trial of whether or not they can participate in the games, or maybe as a jury would put a defendant through on trial. Can you pass the test? So last week we talked about the hunger test, the first temptation of Jesus. This week I want to talk to you about the power test, the power test in Luke. Now uh, we'll go ahead and look at this passage. This is Luke 4, 5 to 7. We're told the devil led him up to a high place, Jesus, and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Now, I'm going to spend a lot of time in just these two verses unpacking why this is such a significant test of Jesus and why this is really a test for us today as well. But before I do, I just want to talk about power for a moment and observe to you that we as a culture currently in this moment, the year 2022, living in Chicago, we are a little bit obsessed with power. Have you noticed this? Specifically, the test of power. What power presents to us? Who has power? Who doesn't have power? Why they should or should not have power? What we might be willing to do to get power or what we would do with power if we had it? Uh, my observation to you is that in the last decade, notice just a few significant 
cultural stories that have been told on both books and in the big screen. First of all, The Hunger Games. Who here remembers The Hunger Games? It feels like a distant time ago, doesn't it? Like we were all much younger, more innocent back then when The Hunger Games came out. Uh, Hunger Games depicts this dystopian future in which society split into 12 districts and all of them are competing on a reality television-esque show where their hope for survival and feeding their people is to kill the other contestants. And what we discover, of course, is that this test, this endurance test in the Hunger Games, is actually a test for power, and yet as the books go on, Katniss discovers increasingly that even the power she thinks she might have really pales in comparison to the manipulation, the corruption that is taking place at the top in the Hunger Games. Uh, recently, just two years ago, the Squid, came, Squid Games came out, right? It's basically the same concept. We're still talking about it. We're still thinking about it. What does it mean to be tempted by unlimited power, and yet who's actually controlling the strings? Uh, around the same time, Netflix released one of its first big shows. In fact, as I was just glancing at it again, it was the first streaming show, streaming original show, to be nominated for an Emmy, and that was House of Cards. Do any of you remember those days <laughs> back in the day? Now, House of Cards te petered off, and there were scandals around it for good reason. It fell flat, as many of these great TV shows do. But think with me about House of Cards, right? The presentation, the draw for us as a society is that we were kind of convinced that politics is actually just corruption, isn't it? We're kind of convinced that like there's just these games being played in DC and if we glance behind the curtain it's all manipulation and deceit and actually it's this house of cards where power is being seized and grabbed until inevitably it's all going to fall apart. Finally, final big show, as if I need to land the point to you. In the last 10 years, what's one of the biggest television shows out there? Many of you have probably watched it, seen it, it's Game of Thrones, right? In which there is a game being played for a throne. It's, I mean, it's perfect. It sets me up rather well to jump into power and what power means. And yet, of course, Game of Thrones is a hyper-sexualized, hyper-violent, hyper-postmodern look at the sense in which we kind of fear and are intrigued by the sense of power. Like, what will you do to get power? Who might surprise us in seizing power? What could happen if power is grabbed by someone else than the one who is currently in charge. Uh, as we talk about power, and we return to this passage, I, I want to summarize what Satan is offering to Jesus. It's actually very aligned with these stories we've been telling about power. There's a truthfulness to these stories that is a danger and a test for you and I. And I'm going to call this the games of power, right? This is the test that Jesus has faced. If we could return to this passage, what Satan is going to offer to Jesus is a vision in which he tells him, I can give you all power. Now, there's a couple of really interesting insights about the text here. The first is that for any of you who have been tracking, uh, Luke rearranges the tests of Jesus. Uh, the, Matthew actually has this as the final test. Luke pulls it back to the second test. If any of you are interested, this has very little relevance to the point I'm about to make, but it seems to be that Luke is going to center the conflict with Satan at the temple. We're going to talk about this next week. Luke kind of sees the big test as what's going to happen in Jerusalem between Satan and Jesus. And so Luke is kind of flipping this power test here into the middle, but it's interesting that Matthew sees this as the big one 
right? This is the ultimate test for Jesus. And as Satan takes Jesus to this high place, this mountain, shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, if you were a first century reader or listener to this text, your ears would have perked up because there was a power that claimed to rule all the kingdoms of the world. If you can guess, I would bet you could figure it out. It was Rome, right? Rome, in the first century, explicitly said as part of their propaganda, we rule all kingdoms of the world. And to a certain extent, they were right. No empire had ever been as large, as sophisticated, or as powerful as Rome, and it was all centered on one man, the Caesar Augustus, who claimed to be Lord. So it's probable here that what's actually happening is that Satan leads Jesus up to this high place, and he shows him, for for help to our imagination, he shows him Rome. He shows him the seat of power from which all authority and splendor is emanating at this point in human history. And Satan says this crazy thing to Jesus. He says, I can give it to you because it is mine. If you really slow down and think about that, there is something a little bit disturbing about the implication of what Luke is revealing to us in this test. Like, there's a sense in the Bible, if you can track with me, that behind all power is this figure, this presence, this evil one, who is always using power to manipulate, to tempt, to rearrange, and to corrupt. And there's a certain sense where if you think about the power that is currently in our geopolitical climate, if you think about the powers you've interacted with, if you've seen the trajectory that even people you may have known have gone on as they've received power, you can kind of get what Satan is saying here, that power seems to be somewhat corrosive, doesn't it? Seems to be somewhat corruptive. Like, it actually makes sense that Satan is the one behind so many of these positions of power, and even if you went into it with a good intention or a good heart, it's so easy for power to quickly become corrupted. However, as you sit with this passage for just a second, and as you consider that claim that maybe it is Satan who is behind Rome at this point in human history, who's pulling the strings, if you will, it's interesting that Bible scholars are pretty quick to point out Uh, whenever Satan speaks, it's maybe helpful to ask, is he actually telling the truth here, (laughs) right? Like, just because Satan says that he has all authority and splendor, that it's been given to him and he can give it to anyone he wants, like, his main alter ego is the deceiver. (laughs) So we maybe need to just ask, it's possible Satan, though he seems to be behind much power, is not actually as in control of power as he wants us to believe. And in fact, very quickly, within the next chapter of Luke, we're going to find Jesus confronted by demons, agents of Satan who are there in Israel, claiming to be representing Satan's unlimited authority and power. And with a word, Jesus is going to dismiss and cast out those who are in his midst as demonic agents. I mean, it doesn't seem like Satan has quite as much power as he would like to think. If we were to try to summarize all this into like a a system or a theology or an explanation of how power is working in this paradigm that Satan is putting forward, I would begin by noting that Satan wants us to believe in the games of power that might equals right. Might equals right. So if you are strong enough, 
you should take the power that is available to you. Isn't this the premise behind almost every one of these high-sweeping epic fantasy stories? Yet if you sit with this concept for just a second, I just want to introduce you to one thinker. I know sometimes I throw thinkers at you. I know a lot of you are really not interested in philosophy and do not want to hear what I'm about to share. But I'm going to continue anyways. Uh, that There's a guy who kind of sits behind this philosophy in our current cultural moment, who actually is the source of these huge sweeping stories from Hunger Games to Game of Thrones. And his name is Michel Foucault. I'm going to throw his name up on the screen. So you can see, I gave you a picture too, just so you wouldn't think it's Michel. It's Michel, he's French, uh, French Michel, Foucault, and Foucault's huge contribution to the history of thought and to the Western civilization and to philosophy is that Foucault proposed as he looked at society, and specifically he did two major studies, one on the prison system and the second on sexuality. Foucault's observation was that both systems are built entirely on power entirely on power. In fact, Foucault's major idea was that everything is power. Everything is power. So Foucault just kind of pursues this relentlessly. He talks about it a lot. He explores it from a number of different angles. And if you live in Foucault's world, then what becomes increasingly clear is that there is a sense that all your relationships all social systems and structures, the job you work, the restaurant you go order food at, the phone call you make with your mother because you feel guilty that you haven't called her in a while. I'm just speaking for me there. Uh, all of that is, is power, right? It's games of power. There's a sense where if everything is power, then the only implication is whether you have power or you don't. And if everything is power, then you better gain as much power as you can, and you also better resist or revolt against those who have power over you. Otherwise, you will always live under power's control. This, this is a huge idea. It's a radical idea. There's a lot you can unpack here with Foucault, but it's interesting. I just stumbled across the New York Times who, in an article, an opinion piece, where they observed that you can see Foucault operating on the extremes of both the left and the right politically right now. Like Foucault's big idea is that you've got to throw off the systems of power that are over you. And if you think about it, politically, the, the tumult we're feeling in our country right now at this moment, it's because we're all afraid that someone or something is going to get in power, and when they get in power, then they're going to be able to control us. And this leads to the second point in the games of power, that oftentimes the reason we fear power or we want power is because power equals control. Power is going to equal control in the games of power. So we fear if someone else were to have control over us, and we long for this opportunity to have control over ourselves, right? This is what we're hungry for. This is what we're desperate for. And so if we go back to this passage where Jesus is being tested by Satan, notice that the real temptation the real offer that Satan is extending is that Jesus could control in an instant how he gets the power that is rightfully Jesus's. So, so Jesus has to know in this moment, he's just gone through his baptism, he's just been proclaimed to be the Son of God. Jesus knows that all kingdoms, all power is rightfully his as the Son of God. Yet in this moment, Jesus does not have that power, right? Jesus is alone by himself in the wilderness. And Jesus can see the, the years ahead, the ministry ahead, the path he's about to have to walk is going to be a lonely, 
painful and hard road before power is finally given to him. And in this moment, Satan is saying, what if you could control power? What if you could get the power that you know is rightfully yours? However, if these are the first two rules in the games of power, there is one last rule that is worth being aware of, and that is that power always comes at a cost. Power always comes at a cost. You can see this in the way that often these huge movies and shows uh, just demonstrate the character's own wrestling and often corruption. The more power they get, the more they are tested and tempted by mishandling or misusing that power. Um, There's a famous story back in early literature about Dr. Faustus. Were any of you forced to read Dr. Faustus in high school lit? Uh, It's a 16th century play about a man who, in his boredom and pursuit of knowledge, happens to summon a demon. So a demon appears, and as the story goes, this demon is going to offer Faustus a deal. If you sign your life over to me, I will give you knowledge and power for the next 24 years, but you will serve me for that time. And Faustus, without really thinking about it, says, done, deal. Uh, Your power sounds good to me. I commit my life in service to you. So the next 24 years go by, and like disappointingly, Faustus really doesn't do much (laughs) with the power that he has. Like he kind of wastes time, he flaps about. And then as the 24 years are coming to a close, Faustus in his panic has this moment where he says, maybe, maybe I should turn to Jesus. Like maybe Jesus can save me. And yet at that moment, a demon appears and says, it's too late. Your 24 years are up and Faustus is taken back into hell. There's, there's a point to this story, and that is that power does come at a cost. And we actually see this, if we go back to this temptation one more time, in the way Satan frames his offer to Jesus. He says to him, power, that thing you want that's right here in my hands, power can be yours, but, you notice right at the end, if you worship me, it will all be yours. Satan couches the if, doesn't he? He covers and hides the cost, and yet the reality is all power at some level is going to come to you at a cost. Uh, For any of you who have found yourself this sort of disgruntled employee only to become the supervisor, have any of you ever been in that position? You suddenly realize, oh, power comes at a cost. It is not as fun or as easy as I thought it might be to be the one in charge. I'll be the first to admit in church circles and church worlds, I have been in many different churches. I was a congregant for a while. I've worked on pastoral staff, and I always thought it would just be so much better if I was in charge, (laughs) right? Like if I was the one who had the power, then I could fix all these problems. And inevitably, inevitably, when you find yourself in the position of power you thought you deserved, you will realize it actually does come with a cost. If this is the games of power, if if these are the sort of mind-bending and yet very real stakes of power that our culture is currently wrestling with, the question I want to sort of close this with here is the question, how does Jesus respond to the test of power? If we pay attention to how Jesus responds, then we could see how we too might respond to the various tests that are going on around us. Big picture tests, political tests, cultural tests of power, and then very personal 
tests, those invitations you're going to get to step into positions of power, be they large or small. So here's what Jesus says. It is going to be a surprisingly simple and efficient response, and we're going to break it down. Jesus answered in Luke 4, 8, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When Jesus sees the offer of the game of power that Satan presents him, he's going to step out of the game into an alternative world, an alternative framing, which I'm going to call the way of the cross. Jesus responds to Satan with the way of the cross. And here's what the way of the cross understands. Here's what Jesus is going to demonstrate across his whole life and ministry. And here's the invitation for you and I today. The first understanding of the way of the cross is that worship— Specifically, worship of the one true God is actually the only way we can be free. Like, we think over here in the games of power that if we amass enough power for ourselves and we could finally control our lives, we could finally control the circumstances we find ourselves in. But Jesus is going to radically insist, along with the whole Bible, that the only possible freedom you can find, the only way you can truly be free when it comes to power is when you turn your allegiance from amassing power for yourself and you turn towards worship of the one true living God who had all of the power to begin with. Jesus understands that when Satan offers him a simple invitation, just worship me and you can have all the power you want, it actually is going to be a Faustus-type constraint, isn't it? If you worship whatever that thing is that is offering you power, then inevitably that thing will at some point control you. But God is the only one, the only one with power that is offered to you in which God, if you step over into worship of him, is going to free you, free you from the need for power, free you from the amassing of power, free you from the fear of someone else controlling you. God is the only one whom when you give God control, God will not harm, God will not abuse, God will not manipulate, God will not corrupt. And this is going to be because the second, the second invitation in the way of the cross is this understanding that Jesus centers on in responding to Satan, that all power, properly understood, is actually power that is given. All power, properly understood, is always power that is given. You cannot seize power without amassing an incredibly great cost. But if you live in this alternative way, if you walk the way of the cross, you begin to see God is the one worthy of worship because God has given you all power, because God has all power. And in God's power, God can freely distribute power to you, to others, to meet needs across the world. Like God, if God has all power, God is the one who can give the power to you. Now, I realize in saying this, if you're tracking with me and if you're even like, catching the implications of what this way of the cross actually means, I think there's a pretty, a pretty brutal fact that needs to be confronted in this realization. And that fact is that sometimes people in our lives, people in our society, have power who don't seem to deserve it, right? Some people have been given power that probably don't seem to deserve the power they've been given. And our frustration, our bitterness, our, our true anxiety comes about because all we begin to see are those people who have been given power that are not us. And we begin fixating ourselves on power that was given over here and power that we truly should be the ones to deserve. 
And to that, to that, I think Jesus is giving us an invitation even this morning. If we go back to his response again. Jesus says, instead of focusing on power, instead of becoming the judge of who deserves what power where, what if you could instead worship the Lord your God and serve him only? Worship the Lord your God. Jesus lived in a society that was just as corrupt as ours was today. Jesus lived not only under Roman persecution and oversight, but under Jewish persecution and oversight. Jesus was going to find himself not only under the thumb of Rome, but under the thumb of religious Pharisees who would test and belittle. I mean, Jesus understood what it was like to experience power that had been given to people who did not deserve it. And yet Jesus's point is that you cannot, you cannot get lost in these games of power. You cannot get fixated on who has what power. Instead, what you can do is look and ask, what power has God given me, and how will I now use that power for God? This leads to our final thought of the way of the cross, and that is that power, inevitably given by God, is always given so that we could serve. Power is given so that we can serve. I think this is the only hope for our culture in which we live in these desperate games of power. The only way that the Christian church, the Christian community, can become the kind of community that we are meant to be is if we take up this call of Jesus and we don't fixate on what power we're supposed to have, we instead ask, how is the power given to us, power that is given to serve the world around us? If you think about Jesus's life, over and over and over again, he's going to come back to this theme, this insistence that the whole reason Jesus is here, the whole reason power has been given to him, is so that Jesus can serve. I love this verse in Matthew 20, 28. Jesus is going to say, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, he is going to give his life as a ransom for many. This, this actually is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of who Jesus is. This is the heart of what Jesus wants to offer you, and this is the heart of what Jesus is calling us to offer others. As you sit with this word servant and you think about it, like what did it mean for Jesus to serve? What is he even talking about here? What would it look like to live out this serving the way that Jesus did it? I think about the key moment in Jesus's life, the memorable moment, at the end of the Gospel of John, where his disciples have gathered for the Last Supper, and it's the Passover, it's this big meal that's celebrating what God has done. And as the disciples are starting to file in, they discover to their shock that Jesus, who is the guest of honor, the one with all authority and power in their midst, Jesus has taken off his robe and he has adopted the towel of a servant. Quite literally in the Greek, to serve or to be a servant was to be a waiter at a table. This is what Jesus does, and as his disciples come in, he gets down on his hands and feet, and he begins to ask them, may I wash your feet? This is what power given by God is meant to do. It's there to serve. As I think about this image of a waiter, you, many of you, I'm sure, have been waiters at different points. This is a pretty common job across the city. Waiters are not the people I typically think about when I think about power, right? Instead, waiters feel quite powerless. Waiters come to your table, 
They're there to receive your needs. Uh, inevitably, you give them a complaint or two about how cold the draft is coming in or how uncomfortable your chair is, and they smile at you and nod. And Then they ask you, what is it that you would like to eat today? And you give them whatever you feel like is on your palate. This is what I would like to eat. And the, the waiter dutifully heads to the kitchen and reports your order to the staff. And then the waiter's life is lived there in between the kitchen and your table, just serving you, right? Refilling your cup of water, bringing you more beverages, checking in if your food is okay, offering encouragement, offering advice, offering different things you should try. And then at the end of the meal, as you get up and you delightfully go on your way, the waiter returns to your table and they clear all the dishes that you've just used. This is not a glamorous image when it comes to power, is it? And yet this is the image that Jesus adopts. Power is given to serve. There was one moment in my life uh, that I've been thinking about all week because I've been thinking about power and what it means to be a servant. And it was when I was in my early 20s, inevitably, like many of you, I found myself working at Starbucks. And <laughs> there it is. Uh, it was a gay time. It was the best of time and the worst of times over at Starbucks. Uh, but the thing about Starbucks is that it, it was a brutal, fast-paced city of Chicago Starbucks. The lines were crazy. The work was kind of miserable, to be honest with you. That was my, my, <laughs> my experience at Starbucks. Uh, and you were just making drinks and in, like serving all the time. This is what you're doing. And yet this one day in particular, I remember one of the hardest moments of my time at Starbucks was uh, that someone walked into the store who often was around our store on the streets and you could tell that they were probably homeless. Uh, they didn't smell good at all. I mean, this is a pretty common occurrence in the city. And as they walked in, you just felt everyone kind of like flinch, like, oh, here, here's, here's a disruption to uh, our otherwise peace and security just sitting and drinking a cup of coffee. And inevitably, this person came up to the cash register as we were in the middle of a rush, and they ordered a glass of water. <laughs> and that was all they ordered. Uh, and then they went and sat down, and I was at the end of the coffee bar, and uh, coffees are flying, cups are moving through, and inevitably we get this water, and I'm the one calling drinks out, and so I call out water. And I had been paying just enough attention to know that it was this person who had ordered the water. And in that moment, I just, I felt, I felt the, the games of power. I felt all the frustration of being a server at Starbucks when I had great aspirations of all the things I wanted to do. And to be honest, I was disappointed that I was here and I was angry that I was working such early morning hours and that I wasn't getting paid enough. And here I am having just been placed in order for a cup of water and the person's sitting all the way over there. And in that moment, I just felt like one of the strongest moments of the Spirit just nudging me. That here I was in Chicago, having trained for ministry, having told all of my co-employees that I had aspirations to be a pastor. And here's a person in genuine need of a cup of water, and I have the opportunity to offer it to them. And so that's what I did. I, I paused, I grabbed the cup, I walked around the counter, and I walked up to the person and said, here's your cup of water, and they said, thanks. Now, I share that story not because I was very glamorous in it, <laughs> instead because it was one of the harder moments of counting the cost of powerlessness that I felt in the truly hard and difficult season of my life. And yet, as I think about that moment, it's not even significant what I offered, right? It was a cup of water. There was very little power in the grand scheme of the universe being exchanged 
between a barista who walks around the counter to offer a cup of water to a homeless person. And yet I think, I think this is actually the vision of what Jesus is talking about when he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Can you imagine if each of us started to reframe power, less about the power we feel entitled to, less about the power we wish we had, and more about the power that's been given to us that we could use to serve others. I want to end with just two big practical applications here as the band begins to come up, and in just a moment we're going to move towards a time of communion. The reason why I've spent so much time on power and why I showed you a picture of Michel Foucault and we've talked about movies and we've stared deep into Satan's test of Jesus is that I think truly now, in this moment, in the year 2022, we face a bit of a cultural crisis around power. I think if you actually attune your ears, and maybe some of you have already been resonating as I've been walking through some of these different stories and rules in the games of power, I think we're facing right now a very big competitive moment where our culture is trying to figure out how do any of us make sense of power? Like, what do any of us do with the powerlessness we feel? What do any of us do with the power we wish we had? And how do we deal with the fact that there's all these people who seem to be in power who don't seem to deserve it? And my encouragement to you is to take some of this framing and intentionally lean into how you as a Christian, or you as a follower of Jesus, are you even just interested in spirituality? How you talk about power with others. Because I think the great temptation is for us to fixate on the power we don't have and to miss this opportunity to see in the way of the cross that Jesus invites those who follow him to a radically different understanding of power than anything the world or our culture has. If we as a church could actually begin to get around this idea of power. We begin to see, yes, there is a game being played. Yes, there are terrible rules to that game, and guess what? The danger in that game is that a cost is always coming for the power you try to seize. Yet here, with Jesus, we are given this frame, this invitation, this beautiful way that if we could pick it up and pick up that cross with Jesus and follow him into a life of service, you could actually be surprised by the profound amount of power you're able to give away for the good of others. And that's maybe my final encouragement and application for you. Maybe some of you this morning feel stuck in powerlessness. And I think if that's where you are, I, ju I just want to give you this picture of Jesus. Uh, give you a Jesus who understands, who understands what it's like to be there hungry in the desert, wandering feeling totally disconnected from this huge purpose and calling that God has on his life. And yet, even in that moment, Jesus looks at this invitation towards power and he says, I believe there is a better way. And that is the way of the cross. If you were able to pick up the way of the cross, I wonder how you might be able to see the power God has given, the ways that power could be used for others.